space and call it a bare stage. A man walks across this empty space while someone else is watching him, and this is all that is needed for the act of theatre to be engaged. So said theatre practitioner Peter Brook in his 1968 work, The Empty Space. In a short sentence, he succeeded in summing up the fundamental of the theatre experience. From early civilizations and probably even before that, mankind has found the urge to distill the human experience through performance. This is the essence of what we are going to trace through recorded history in this podcast, in a more or less chronological order. So welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me at the start of this journey through millennia of theatrical history. But before we get started, I wanted to give you a brief introduction to myself and the plan for the podcast. Watching a play is one of the great joys of my life. I get a huge thrill every time I walk into a theatre with the expectation of what is about to happen. I really enjoyed that experience from an early age, and I pursued that through a school amateur dramatic acting career, and then getting a theatre studies degree. That included some acting, sound and lighting design, stage management and directing. And of course, looking at the history and development of theatre. It's all quite a long time ago now, and post-education, as I got a working career started, I just enjoyed my theatre going as often as I could afford it, and thought little more of it. Then a few years ago, I saw a wonderful production of Othello, and I decided I wanted to know more about Shakespeare and his life and times, feeling like I must have forgotten most of what I'd learned, and acknowledging that scholarship had probably moved on a lot in the intervening years. So, I went and found a couple of books and read through them, and I felt they really enhanced my understanding and appreciation and enjoyment of the play. The next time I saw a Shakespeare, it was a production of The Tempest on this occasion, I did some reading around before seeing the play and felt so much better equipped to appreciate at least some of the layers of nuance in that magical piece. That enhanced appreciation, along with the feeling that there was so much more to learn, was the inspiration for this podcast. At the time, I was becoming an avid podcast listener myself as I filled a long commute. And I found history podcasts, I found podcasts about theatre people and practice, but I couldn't find anything that merged the two. And so, the idea for this podcast was born. And if I can put the primary purpose in a nutshell, it would be to enhance the enjoyment of theatre through understanding its context. Plays are meant to be seen, to be experienced, and sometimes they can be difficult, either because they don't speak to the particular audience member on an individual level, or because they contain ideas that are difficult to work through. Of course, a good play should be able to pick up its audience, drop it in the action or argument, and carry them for the ride. We'll be talking a lot about how that manifests itself. And some plays are written just for the laugh and the fun, and there's nothing wrong with that. Comedy is just as valid as tragedy, as farce, as musicals, as any other form or genre that you care to think of. They speak to us in different ways, and I want to see how that works and what the validity of those different types is. In that sense, I believe we can enhance the appreciation and understanding when we know more about the context that surrounds the plays. In my early career, I was lucky enough to work for a playwright's agent, and although I was very much a junior member of that team, by some proximity to the playwrights and their work, I soon came to appreciate the amount of crafting that a playwright does, how much meaning and nuance they weave into a text while keeping the vision for the piece clear. 
That's the real art of playwriting. And of course, it's not just playwrights. The director and other theatre professionals have a huge amount of input into the final production. So let's look at theatre in the broadest sense to appreciate the art to the fullest extent. Since the times of the ancient Greeks, we have records of theatre activity that has been an unbroken line in Europe right up to the present day. To trace that history gives us a broad canvas across which we can see historical development reflecting changes in societies across millennia. How do we get from ancient Greece with its outdoor location, poetic texts and and masked chorus through to the indoor theatres of today with their lit stage, audio technology, plush seating and interval drinks? Are they the same thing? On the face of it, maybe not, but in many ways, it's not such a big leap. Are the thoughts and ideas carried through the dramatic form changed so much in this time? The similarities are as fascinating as the differences. Through the plays and productions of any era, we're told something, and sometimes quite a lot, about human nature, how it's changed and how it hasn't changed in all that time. For those of us who want to find a door to understanding the past, theatre provides an exceptional way in. The same can be said for literature, art and dance, of course, but I believe theatre holds a special place precisely because it combines so many artistic strains into a unique whole. But we need some help sometimes. The underlying thoughts, meanings and messages of a play can get lost if we don't understand the context in which it was written. That's the social, political, economic, literary and religious context. In other words, understanding the historical context as best we can can be crucial to a complete understanding of a play, or at least as close as we can get to that. So, to put some cards on the table, I'm not a professional historian, nor directly involved in theatre practice. But my plan is to read up as much as I can on a subject area and condense that into a regular podcast that can be released on a weekly basis. I'm not expecting to be digging directly into the primary source materials, but I'll be using published and contemporary accounts and later scholarship to the best of my abilities. I want to tell the story of the progressive development of theatre, so we'll be taking a more or less chronological approach. I say more or less because I'm sure there will be eddies in the stream that will be well worth exploring and distractions that just can't be avoided. It's one of the beauties of theatre that it's diverse and eclectic, so I don't see any reason why this podcast shouldn't be like that too. And to give you an idea of the pace and depth I'm planning to spend the next 12 weeks with the ancient Greeks, so some six hours or so of podcasting time, before before moving on to the Romans and then on to the medieval period. Some periods will no doubt have more to cover than others. One could devote a whole continuous podcast to Shakespeare, let alone the rest of the playwrights from the same period, so I expect to be breaking those down into more detailed seasons. My experience of history podcasting is that the audience love a good bit of detail, but also want a narrative that moves along with a clear path. So I'll be trying to walk that tightrope. Perhaps the very start of drama is with man's desire to imitate. Human beings, and indeed our nearest relatives, the apes and chimpanzees, are all natural mimics. This is a basic way of learning, so an evolutionary skill. Aristotle put it well when he wrote, It is clear that the origin of dramatic poetry was due to two courses, each of them part of human nature. Imitation is natural to man from childhood, one of his advantages over the lower animals being this, 
that he is the most imitative creature in the world. And it is also natural for all to delight in the works of imitation. Mankind also has a basic love of play, developed no doubt as a training tool as we see in other young animals today. Couple this with the learning and advancement possible through imitation, and we can begin to see why these natural elements of man's character become so important. A third element is, I think, our naturally sociable nature. We're all social animals and like indeed need to do things together. We like to entertain each other and share in communal enjoyments as well as personal private ones. That's almost certainly an evolutionary protective instinct. The fact that there is safety in numbers, and when we work together, we can achieve more than we can on our own, is a huge driving force. These are, I think, the fundamentals of what it is to be the bipedal intelligent ape. There comes a point in the development of mankind, currently thought to be about 400,000 years ago, when intelligence beyond satisfying basic survival needs develops. This is possibly linked to the development of the use of fire for cooking, and also seems to coincide with the development of social groups beyond the family. At some point, and possibly about this time, the religious impulse developed to try to explain where we were and how we came to be. The original forms of religion were almost certainly animistic and a means of trying to encourage a better life, be that more food or more shelter or better company or better protection. So put all that in a pot and stir it up and we can jump to a man telling stories that become foundation myths, which gain complexity as small societies develop and grow. From storytelling, throw in the desire to imitate and to present stories to another person or group of people, to give them a a message through performance, and we have the beginnings of theatre. When and where did that actually start? Well, we don't know for sure. What are generally considered to be the first recorded plays, as we would think of them, are by the ancient Greeks, so at about 400 BCE. Was there drama before this point? Well, I think so. So here's a bit of prehistory before we get to the Greeks. Most scholars agree that theatre developed from religious ceremony. But when is a religious ceremony a theatrical experience, and when is it not? When does the congregation become an audience? When does the holy man become a performer? When does the sanctuary become a stage? There's a fine line here, and our knowledge of the performance that happened in these ancient times is inevitably very limited. Perhaps the beginning comes in song and dance within the context of religious ritual. Was the first theatre evolved from rituals that early man created to act out events symbolically? If so, these events were probably natural events, and enacting them would have been an attempt to bring them down to the human scale. There is archaeological evidence that supports the idea of early societies dressing up with animal skins and dancing and singing in honour of God or gods. Some of the earliest known evidence for this is from cave paintings in the south of France. These date from the late Paleolithic period, that's about 40,000 to 10,000 BCE. The paintings depict among animal images half-human, half-animal figures in animated poses. They certainly look like dancers wearing the heads and skins of animals, so the use of a form of mask to transform or enhance the performer would appear to be a very early trait in the development of the performance. Of course, the use of masks continues up to today, and we will come across it many times in the course of our journey.
The cave paintings also include a figure playing a nose flute and wearing that stalwart of the theatre, the phallus. This one is nearly 60 centimetres long, painted along the contours of the cave. The phallus will return to the story frequently. The precise meaning behind the cave art may be impossible to gauge, but to conclude that they depict a performed ritual is irresistible. If there was pleasure and enjoyment taken by the participants and the audience in this religious ritual, then we get closer to something we might call theatre. Ceremonies in a similar vein can still be found today in isolated societies that live more primitive lives than the rest of us. If such ceremony is to diverge from the religious, at what point does it become an entertainment? At what point is it secular? Theatrical elements obviously exist in a religious ceremony. There is chanting, repetition and symbolism. But the intention is religious. There's a division between a celebrant and a congregation, and there is a stage of some sort in many cases. So we probably need to think about intent as much as action to make the differentiation between religion and theatre. In these very early times of recorded history, it seems that the two were very close together, but diverging over a very elongated period of time. A second, but not unrelated theory, suggests that theatre evolved from shamanistic rituals. This is different because shamanism purported to be the manifestation of a supernatural presence that was displayed to the audience, not merely a representation of it. The shaman, falling into a trance and enacting rituals, performing rhythmic dancing or feats of the apparently supernatural, is very theatrical in its nature, however sincere the held beliefs are. Perhaps the shaman is the first actor, and his awestruck viewer the first audience. It's worth mentioning a couple more examples of the religious theatrical history before the Greeks come on the scene. So from the deep time of hundreds of thousands of years ago, we can move to a period where the basic elements of imitation, learning, social contact and social cohesion, and of course the religious impulse, have already come together. So times when man is less nomadic, and in some cases, a sedentary urbanite. Still deep in the historic past, ancient Egypt appears to have been the home for the first true dramatic production. This detail comes to us in the form of an inscribed stone tablet or stele that describes what has become known as the Abydos Passion Play. Pageant would probably be a better description. The stele describes an 18-day pageant that commemorated the death and rebirth of the god Osiris. This is dated to around 2000 BCE. The play tells of the slaying of the god Osiris and his men by his brother Seth. The killing is bloody, involving Osiris being violently torn to shreds. The pageant was a very large production. A cast of hundreds of people were involved in the play, some of them, at least, taking defined roles. There was use of props and scenery, such as a sacred boat. The scale of production here begins to look more like true theatre. This is a spectacle specifically staged and presumably rehearsed with a specific purpose in mind. And this is so large scale that it must have had a social imperative as much as a religious one. In ancient Egypt, the two were, of course, very entwined. The archaeological evidence we have shows that during the 12th dynasty, that's about 1850 BCE, the pharaoh appointed a high government official to take charge of the pageant, who then acted a leading role in it. 
It's possible to argue, therefore, that he was the first professional actor. This account has been the cause of much scholarly conversation, and there's much ambiguity about exactly how the pageant was presented and produced. One rather shocking detail we do have is that the performance resulted in the death of participants. Perhaps something to do with the large crowds involved, or the very violent action being reenacted. This little nugget comes from later Greek historians, so perhaps we should treat it cautiously. They were not subject to the same rigours of accuracy and impartiality that we expect today, and were known for finding the other, foreigners from outside their own society, almost too extraordinary to understand. So they tended to ascribe the extraordinary to them. As the Abydos play continues, Isis and Horus, the wife and son of Osiris, collect his remains and restore him to life. The play is a presentation about the cycle of life and the seasons, and of resurrection. It was an annual event which survived until about the year 400 CE. This is an incredibly long period for a work to survive in regular performance, which may speak to it still being a fundamentally religious presentation rather than a secular or an entertainment. Roughly speaking, that's like watching a play from the ancient Greek era in our own time. When Herodotus, the Greek historian, saw the Passion Play on a visit to Egypt in 450 BCE, he also recorded that there was a tradition of popular drama that used some comedy, albeit still with a religious nature. The details are sketchy, so it's difficult to draw further conclusions about the nature of the comedy. But interestingly, he cites plays depicting Horus being born as a baby but growing very large and developing an enormous appetite. So it would seem that a major god could be involved in the comic without causing offence. The Abidus Passion Play isn't a unique example of the idea of performance in Egyptian life. The archaeological evidence, including many wall and tomb carvings, and decorations on funerary gifts and sarcophagi, show priests who are thought to have impersonated the gods by wearing masks and reciting hymns and prayers. There are carvings of what looked like ritual dance, dated to about 3500 BCE. It's also been argued that the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which dates from 1800 BCE, is actually an oratorio. Think of it as the ancient Egyptian equivalent of Handel's Messiah or Haydn's creation. These papyrus scrolls, which were discovered in the 19th century, describe the journey of the soul after death, where the jackal-headed god Anubis brings the departed to the Hall of Truth. The heart of the dead is weighed, and if it doesn't outweigh a feather, then immortality is granted by Osiris. In fact, there's no clear evidence that the Book of the Dead was a work to be performed, but the texts are both vibrant and extensive and well worth viewing if you ever get the chance. So it's not until we get to Greek theatre that we can see something very recognisable to us today. The word theatre itself comes from the Greek. Theatron means a place of seeing, which itself comes from the Greek to act or to do. We'll look some more at Greek words and we still use in relation to theatre, but I think it's very important to note this particular meaning here. To act and to do. The place of seeing. This is moving away from the bardic tradition, from listening to the recitation of a tale around the fire. The meaning has expanded in more recent times. So theatre can refer to the building or marked space where the event happens, 
or it means the profession that employs so many skilled and diverse people, or to the literature of the stage, or the amalgamation of the practices as a whole. As such, the word expresses the synthesis of many skills and individual arts to create the whole. At its core, theatre is collaborative and therefore communal. Often in modern times, we think of entertainment as the principal drive, but there's also the ability to teach in the broadest sense, both individually and to society in general. Theatre can speak to a community, from the very local to the national, and even these days, the international. Think of the broadcasting of productions by major national institutions to cinemas across the world. But theatre does not just speak to a community, but can be an agent for change within that community. Posing of a question or presentation of a distillation of truth as part of a theatrical production goes right back to the Greeks. Theatre has been incredibly powerful in the past, and I would argue remains so today, in spite of the crowded marketplace it occupies. And I think that power is retained principally because theatre remains a live and unique experience, with an understanding, a communication between collective performers and a collective audience can be achieved. The power comes from the fact that theatre is no single art form, but a synthesis of many, using language, dance, sound, light, art, sculpture, just to name a few. Theatre is at its core collaborative and is in a continuing and changing conversation with its audience. So, following that brief romp through prehistory and ancient Egypt, we can fast forward and move northwards to ancient Greece. Next time, we'll be in the company of the society that is said to have given birth to Western civilization. But before we get there, I wanted to conclude this introduction with some practical thoughts. A note on dates. There's a lot of debate about dates and how to express them, especially when we're discussing ancient history. I won't be getting too hung up on those arguments, and we'll use the scholarly consensus without comment unless it directly affects the narrative. There'll be a lot of approximate BCE dates to start with, and then steadily more firm CE dates as we progress. And a word on pronunciation. I will do my best, but I'm sure I'll maul it at times. I only have a smattering of schoolboy French and German left besides my native English. Any errors are mine and I'm happy to be corrected by those who know better. In many cases, we'll be looking at plays in translation, and it's worth noting that the choice of translation is very significant. Translations of the same original work can vary tremendously, so your choice of translation can make a huge difference in the message and tone of the play. We can say that translations fall broadly into three categories. There's the literal translation, where a translator makes a word-for-word translation. These can be difficult to read, as word order can appear twisted, and references within the text can lack meaning to the modern reader. Then there are poetic translations designed to be read, and then the dramatic translation designed for performance. Of the latter two, some translations can be very free and go for the spirit of the play, and in doing so, they give a very individualistic view. In addition, translations can be fully blown adaptations. Think of Seamus Heaney or Ted Hughes's work, which is arguably more theirs than Greek. All have some merit, of course, and are works of art in their own right. 
I'm going to lean towards using the translations designed for performance, but generally will only reference which translation when it's really necessary. Next time, we move to ancient Greece and the beginning of recorded theatre. We will look at the plays and the playwrights and the language and practice of theatre. We will see how that language for the theatre developed, some of which we still use today. To start with, we're still rooted in religion, and particularly the religious festivals that gave birth to the theatre of ancient Greece. So hold on for a bit of sacrifice, some fun times, and a cup or two of wine as the Athenians celebrate Dionysus. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.